Hello and welcome to a Mighty Blaze podcast, now part of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze is your online and audio destination for the very best interviews with blockbuster authors, debut writers, and everyone in between. We were all abuzz at a mighty blaze when the Thoughtful Bro Show welcomed one of America's most esteemed writers, Stuart Onan. The author of books like West of Sunset, City of Secrets, Emily Alone, and Wish You Were Here, among others, Stuart talked with Thoughtful Bro host Mark Cecil about his newest novel, Ocean State, the importance of recognizing your own biases, and the themes that will always be included in his work. As an extra special added bonus, he also graced us with his very first public reading from Ocean State. So settle in and enjoy the conversation and the debut reading as I pass the blaze torch to Mark and his legendary literary guest, Stuart Onan. Hey everybody, welcome to The Thoughtful Bro. We are here live streaming as always on A Mighty Blaze on Tuesday at 2. Um, if you're joining us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, wherever you may be, thank you so much for joining us. We have a great show with Stuart Onan today to talk about his new book releasing on this very day, uh, Ocean State. It's going to be a great talk. We're going to talk about um, this book. We're going to dig into it. We're going to talk about um, his, how he does his craft. We're going to talk about his career. There's so much stuff to get into um, with Stuart, and it's really an honor to have him here. But first, a few words of introduction. Um, for those who may not know, Mighty Blaze is an all-volunteer initiative to help writers reach readers virtually during COVID and beyond. Um, we're not asking for your money. If you want to support us, you can just like us on social media. That's all we're asking. Um, or if you want to find out more about A Mighty Blaze, uh, you can go to our website, amightyblaze.com, and you can sign up for our newsletter. We will give you the, the fresh schedule of upcoming interviews every week. There's several other shows on A Mighty Blaze, and all of them talking with authors who have just released books. So it's always the freshy freshiest on A Mighty Blaze. And uh, just sign up for our newsletter. Um, as I said, all this content is completely free, but if you are in fact in the mood to spend money, please spend it on beautifully drawn character-driven books about desire and working class life in America, books like Ocean State by Stuart Onan. Uh, we'll put a link in the chat for you to buy the book. Please just go ahead and indulge your inner spender and uh, buy a couple copies for yourself and your friends. Um, if you want to ask a question to Stuart, um, please just put it in the comments. It will make its way through to me. I can see all the comments. Um, so we'll get to the questions at the end. Um, a little bit about what's coming up next in the next few weeks. We have a big couple weeks coming up um, on The Thoughtful Bro. Um, Peng Shepard is coming up next week. Uh, I really loved Peng's first book. It was called The Book of M. Her second novel is called The Cartographers. Um, it looks terrific. Um, Lit Hub said it was a dark fable um, for fans of gothic inflected speculative fiction, which is sort of my thing too. Um, Emily St. John Mandel, who's the author of Station Eleven, is coming up on April 5th. And then Pulitzer Prize winner um, and author of A Visit from the Goon Squad, Jennifer Egan. She has a new book out called The Candy House, and that's coming up in a special episode on April April 7th. So a lot of great stuff coming up in the next few weeks. Uh, please tune in. But enough about that. 
time to introduce this week's guest. Um, Stuart Onan's award-winning fiction includes Snow Angels, A Prayer for the Dying, Last Night at the Lobster, and Emily Alone. Granta named him one of America's best young novelists. Young, young. 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 Wow, that was a long time ago. Recently named him as one of the ah. best young novelists. Ah. Um, he is known for his spare, precise character studies of small town America. His work has been compared to Sherwood Anderson, Andre Dubus, and Stephen King. Um, his most recent novel, Ocean State, um, is it, for fans of Stuart Onan, this is Stuart Onan kind of doing his thing. Um, it is It totally delivers um, on the brand, as they say. Um, Kirk has said about it, Onan evokes the feverish excitement of young love and the truly destructive force of jealousy. This isn't a crime novel. It's a Shakespearean tragedy told in spare, poetic, insightful prose. Wow. Um, the Pittsburgh Post in a rave review, uh, uh, Pittsburgh Post Gazette in a rave review today said Ocean State is a haunting immersion into the desperate and immediate world of adolescence gone wrong. Stuart, it's so great to have you here. Welcome on the show. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Well, great. So I just want to start, um, you know, you um, were commenting on one of our posts on Instagram and you and I kind of went back and forth in a few comments and that was great. Um, and one of the things you said was you said you were looking forward to coming on the show to get my take on the book because you said that might deepen your own understanding of your work. And I just thought that was kind of an interesting thought. And I just wanted to start there and just say, like, so it must be then that as you go through your book tour, which is starting today and you're going to do so many events and talk to so many people. Is it true then that by maybe the end of that book tour, two months from now, you will have a richer, deeper understanding of your own work that was sort of inaccessible to you before? Definitely, definitely. Yeah. I mean, the, the difficult thing in writing a novel is keeping it all in your head at once. And you can't really do that. I mean, you use notebooks, you use you know, uh, charts and graphs and, and schedules and calendars to, to hold it all in as best as you can at that moment, writing from moment to moment. Um, but putting it all together and seeing all the connections that you've made both consciously and unconsciously, you can't possibly see them all. Um, so a really astute reader can point things out to you and you'll say, oh, I didn't realize that at all, but there it is. Mm -hmm. um, so by the by the end of this tour, I'll know a lot more. And then I'm going to go to Germany to tour with it there. And oh, my gosh, I mean, they'll they'll when you do a reading there, like the first 40 minutes is the moderator comes up and basically reads a academic paper on the work, you know, and they're reading it like they're reading pension. They're breaking it down. Um, and by the, the end of the reading itself, you know, you'll know a lot, lot more. What an experience. I have a friend of mine, uh, an author named Whitney Scherer, who went on tour in Germany. And she said it was it was like this two hour event at this one bookstore and they had a professional actor. Yes, they do. Reading yep. it. And then an interviewer asking her questions. And then, oh, my God, it just seemed, what a production. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's great. It's great because, you know, here in the U.S., they're like, oh, you can read for 15 minutes. Don't read any more than 15 minutes. And over in Germany, like, well, it's going to be at least 45 minutes, at <laughs> least an hour. And you're like, can I, can I be that entertaining? And then they give you these these you know, actors, and they, they bring a whole new life to the work. And they, they read it in ways that you would have never expected. Um, and, and some of them are actually very famous voice actors because they'll say, okay, this guy is Robert De Niro in yeah. Germany. He does De Niro. And so you're like, okay, this is kind of interesting. You oh, know, I've got, I've got kind of De Niro reading parts of, you know, Last Night at the Lobster. You know, okay. yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Do you find that, I mean, I don't want to get too off track here, but I'm just fascinated. Do you find that 
Can you characterize the German readings of your book versus the American readings? Like, is there something to say about the German readership will typically find X, Y, Z more than an American reader? Or um, it, it, it's hard to to put it in abstract terms. It it may be that they see the universal more uh, in the specific. Mm. Um, uh, they'll 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 see characters as every man or every woman in a way, and they'll apply it to their own lives a little quicker, um, or they'll take things to heart actually quicker than American readers will. American mm -hmm. readers will hold re hold characters off and say, that person is not me. Mm -hmm. um, this, is, this is an other. Uh, whereas in Germany, I think, strangely enough, um, they, they take the character to heart and try to see themselves within the character. My goodness, wow. Hope Germans read my books one day. Um, so, uh, Stuart, oh, it's, it's one... just luck, you know, it's just total <laughs> luck. And, uh... um, so, you were mentioning in your answer a moment ago that um, you know you you have all these different ways that you kind of assemble your book, and you kind of can't see the totality or can't see see all of it the way these readers can. But that made me reminded me that I wanted to show our audience your office. If you could just kind of turn <laughs> your because I think okay. your office is so badass. Um, just take us on a little tour. It's it's uh, it may be typical of a disorganized mind. Um, <laughs> I think so. Over here is I mean there's well there is I'm I'm truly very American. Hey. Uh, there's there's the cork board that when I'm working on something gets just covered with stuff. Mm -hmm. um, then we come over here. That's the 2004 Red Sox signed balls. Uh, everybody on that team, God bless them. Oh my them. God! Well, they put my kids through college, so that God thing love might... them. Yeah. That thing's got to be worth a fortune. Oh, Pedro's in there, Manny, Poppy, all those guys. Yeah, it's great. Greatest season um, of all time. All right, keep and, going. Uh, then we've just got books, 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 books. Over there, I think that's R and S. So you got Roth and Shakespeare and oh, Salter, God. Christine Scott. You got your T's, you got your U's. Um, over here is just my grandmother's old hutch, which is filled with advanced reading copies of stuff. Oh, um, over in the corner, you got your A, Bs, and C. So you got your Chandler over there, your Anderson, your Chekhov. Uh, there's my map of the United States. Uh, wow. You can see that. That is uh, my map of rejection. I got a rejection slip from, I think, 47 of the 50 states. Ooh, what's, left? Was, what's left? Uh, back in the day, uh, Nevada did not have a literary <laughs> magazine. Neither did West Virginia. Um, yeah, I think it was 48 out of 50 there. Oh, yeah, wow. And then over here. Uh, just more books, more books, more books, more books, and uh, and, and a lot of a lot of whiskey. There's a lot of whiskey's been showing oh. up lately. So there's boxes of whiskey just hanging around. It's been a, it's been a. Oh my god! And, so an obsession. You, like, you have just seen the platonic form of an author's. Oof! <laughs> it is like the greatest author's office of all time. Yeah, totally, totally disorganized. A total mess, you know. And yeah, so yeah, like my mind. I guess. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's interesting because actually I find your books like so just spare and you get to the pages just flow by and like that everything is so crammed in in that in that office. Well, it's it's a it's it's always that battle between having too much control um, mm -hmm. or, or just letting things just sort of just fester or, or, or riot, you know, mm -hmm. so it's typically I, I was an engineer before I was a writer. Right. So I, I tend to try to exert too much control on things and be. You know, and hold things down. And I, I think I've learned to kind of just let things out and just let them go and just do what they want to do. 
Wow. All right. Well, that was wonderful. And thank you. Um, so I want to move on now, of course, to Ocean State. And um, I want to start by saying I was like reading some reviews of your old, your older work. There's a bunch of, I can't remember what book this was a review of, but um, it was talking about Snow Angels, this review. And it said, Snow Angels is framed by the discovery of a corpse, but the murder is secondary to the coming of age story at the book's core. And I just thought, you know, plus a change, plus c'est la même shows. I mean, like, here you are again uh, with a very similar um, construct. And, you know, kind of everybody who reviews this book talks about that very powerful first line where you talk about here. there's a dead body in that first line. And wait, what am I looking at? Uh, let's see if you can see it there. This is uh, William Maxwell's So Long, See You Tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Which uh, it has that, that place of honor because it's it's always kind of looking over my shoulder, mm. right at my desk. It's you know, one of my favorite favorite books. Yeah, um, and that is that is that same frame, right? Uh, where the murder is not as important as what in that book uh, the two boys are going through, right? Um, and the right. families are going through. Um, but I, I I noticed when I when I started this, I said, oh my gosh, this is very much like Snow Angels in a way, and when I came out the other side of it in the draft process, I realized that it was actually not so much because, and this may be because of, of my being older, that book was very much about the obligations of love between parents and children. Mm -hmm. um, whereas this book I think is about the, the dangers of love and the, the, the ecstasies and the, the misery mm -hmm. of love um, and, and, and trying to, see yourself or your self-worth in someone else. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's that lack of love there. Mm -hmm. um, but but not not at all in a parental way. Where I think Snow Angel is definitely about you know right. parents and children. Right. Yeah. And I just think like overall in your work, it just seems like, I mean, I was thinking like, you know, you know, is this a thriller? Is it a mystery? Is it a work of literary fiction that is impossible to categorize? And I was thinking like maybe the metaphor is like, so a bomb goes off right and so like the thriller version of that story is can we stop the bomb from going off right the mystery version is who set the bomb off and then like the Stuart O'Nan's version of that is like okay the bomb has gone off now we're going to examine <laughs> we're going to examine the lives of all the people who were affected by this bomb going off and all the particular unusual ways that they put strain on their lives is that fair that's, that's very fair. And it reminds me of one of my, my favorite books and, and favorite sort of frames, which is The Bridge of San Luis Rey, mm, Thornton, course, Thornton yeah. Wilder, which mm -hmm. basically tracks all these people and in, in their lives going to the bridge and their lives after the bridge. Yeah. And so it's about it's about consequence. Totally. Um, it's, it's about hope. It's about expectation. And then how those hopes and those expectations and those fears either do or do not come to fruition. And then what's the consequence of that? How do we move on from that? And, and I've noticed this in maybe the last eight or nine books. Um, I'm writing a lot about endurance mm -hmm. uh, because that's, you know, that's our situation, I guess, as humans, we have to endure. Uh, we, we have to endure losing the people that we love. Uh, we have to endure everybody in the end, kind of going away and being left with ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's that's been my focus, and probably since maybe even everyday people, I mm. think, which is which is maybe book or novel number six, I think, or seven, yeah. somewhere. Yeah. But and again, that that could just be a function of my age, I think. Right. But I think you know, I mean, it's also just it's so complex. I mean, I want to talk. We'll talk about the ending eventually, kind of at the end of the interview, but. Um, you know, it's not exactly what you'd expect. I mean, the kind of the way that people deal with this, the impacts that it has, it's, it's you know, 
is there justice? Is there not? Who ends up kind of up and down? Um, it's sort of unpredictable and I guess complex or nuanced is just my kind of simple words for it. But you, you know what I'm saying. Well, it's those connections between the characters yeah. get all screwed up by what happens. Right. Um, so it, it is complicated. And it, it's, again, the consequences on other people, the consequences on the people closest to you. Right. Um, and, and Marie, my, my narrator, has to try to understand what that means to her because she's the one in the end who's kind of stuck with the story and has to carry it and, and, and says, and basically like most first person narrators says, I don't know what to make of this. Can you tell me what this means? Right. Absolutely. Um, you know, I want to talk about um, what you yourself have called writing the provincial novel. I mean, so just to begin, um, two movies uh, that this uh, reminded me of was one was In the Bedroom, which, of course, is based oh, yes. on the Andre Debus novel. And then um, just an incredible film. And then um, more recently, Mayor of Easttown, um, which okay. is a more straightforward kind of whodunit mystery. But just in terms of like the gritty portrayal of a small town um, and the kind of like how this crime kind of filters through the relationships. Um, I thought those were kind of two books in a similar vein to this, but I just want to talk for a moment about this idea of the provincial novel, which is a, a phrase I heard you use. Um, you know, Chekhov is somebody who I often think of in this way, Chekhov just constantly kind of talking about um, these people who are overlooked um, what you called it, like the fly, these are flyover places, even though they're on the East Coast. I mean, there's just sort of like, even these people are poor and working class, but it's like unromanticizable in a way. Like if you were like, got laid off from like the steel mill in West Virginia, that is sort of like a kind of romantic poverty, if you will, right? Hmm. But this is like people working at like CVS. I mean, you can't, you can't like, there's nothing that um, is going to capture your imagination or tell some grand story about America. This is, do, do you see the distinction I'm making? Uh, I'm not saying that yeah. it's okay to be laid off from a steel mill. I'm just saying that like people tend to kind of romanticize a certain kind of poverty, and that's not what this is. Well, it's, I mean, this is just everyday life. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's, I mean, I don't think that Angel, who works at CVS, um, and, and is glad to have a job and, and get some money yeah. from it. Um, she doesn't like the job. She doesn't see herself staying in the job. Uh, but for now, she's just working there. And I think it's just a lot of people do that. I mean, yeah. this, that's, again, that's just life. Uh, yeah. I don't know if it's, you know, tragic or, or um, I don't know. It just, it just is. It just I is. Think. It just is. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and you just don't see that taken seriously very much in in our, I guess, in our, our popular arts, um, mm -hmm. it's always, it's typically made fun of, you know, anyone who has to wear a uniform, you know, for, for their job, they're usually made fun of. Um, I don't know. I, I felt that way when I did uh, last night, the lobster too. Mm -hmm. um, yep. my, my agent said, well, who's going to care about a red lobster? And I was like, but that's, that's exactly the point. You know, that's precisely the point. Here's a guy, Manny, who actually cares about doing a good job and, you know, trying to be a good guy and trying to take care of his employees, even if they, you know, don't appreciate it sometimes. Um, he's trying, you know, and this yeah. is, this is what he's doing. This is his life. So there's that, that kind of just poking fun at stuff for no reason. It seems, I don't know, like, like, I don't know. There's so many things in life are overlooked. Yeah. What, what is, what is really, important to you as a writer what do you think that the world needs to pay more attention to um it's my 
my answer to that is usually very different from say the Marvel universe or right. you know, who knows, who knows. But or at the same time, in Brooklyn for an artist or something, right. I mean, or, or at a tech startup, you know, these things that like get a lot of oh, attention. Yeah. attention. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're hot button topics. Um, yeah. But at the same time, if, if you're just paying attention to the culture at large, you're going to run into those hot button topics and write about them anyway. Right. Um, like, like last night, the lobster comes out and the economy tanks, you know, mm -hmm. all of a sudden, and all of a sudden it seems like a very prescient story. Right. Um, same thing with, uh, what is it? Uh, prayer for the dying, mm -hmm. you know, prayer for the dying happened. And then it came out in France. Is it France? Um, well, first, first, um, speed queen came out in France like two weeks before Carla Faye Tucker was executed mm. in Texas. You know, the first woman to be executed in the U.S. in like, you know, 60 years. Yeah. And they were like, oh, you're right on top of, you know, it's torn from the headlines. And I was like, yeah. I just, you know, I just made this shit up five years ago in Oklahoma. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and, and the same thing with uh, Prayer for the Dying. They saw it as an, a parable for 9-11. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, um, so... One of the Mighty Blaze founders, Jenna Blum, who's actually producing this interview, she has this um, thing she does, which I've never shared publicly before, but I love it. She like talks about the way, like she doesn't let me get my fingers on camera here. She's like, there's this double Ferris wheel. So one is like, what you're interested in writing about goes like this, and what the world is interested in hearing about goes like this. And every once in a while, what you have written about and what the world is interested in hearing about go like this. And they, they land together in the same place. And then that's when a book truly breaks out. And I just thought that was like really, it's not like your other works are not of the same quality. It's just they didn't quite overlap with the zeitgeist in the right way. Exactly. Exactly. When I, when I wrote uh, A World Away, uh, my, my um, agent said, no one wants to read about World War II. Right. You know, and it came out and two weeks later, Saving Private Ryan came out. You're like, okay. I see how that works. I, I totally get it. You know? Um, oh yeah. I mean, sometimes you'll, I mean, the, the Red Sox book, right? We lucked yeah. into the Red Sox book. You know, do you want to write a book about the Red Sox? Well, it's 2004. I guess so. Sure. <laughs> we'll do it. You know? And then five months later, they won the damn world series. So and sometimes wow. you just, you just, you know, you step in it yep. as they say. Yeah. So, but it's also, um, it's an accident of sensibility. It's an accident of proximity growing mm -hmm. up in Pittsburgh. Typically, I mean, everybody in Pittsburgh is concerned about work and the lack of work, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, the town falling apart and people leaving and, you know, the, the institutions that were here suddenly not being here and there being no safety net. And then the question of now uh, with the tech boom, gentrification and who's allowed to come along, who's allowed, who's included in this American dream. Mm -hmm. And you can see it very clearly who is and who isn't. Right. Um, so, th so that's that stuff is always going to be somewhere in my work, and, and it's it's in this work here, even though it's set in Rhode Island. And Stuart, I want to just push a little bit further on this because you you know you this last three minutes of the interview is just such a beautiful answer to the question that I asked. It's ex kind of exactly what I was looking for, um, and I just want to push a little bit further and just say, you know, are you? Clearly, as an artist, you're activated by these kind of flyover places, these people, these these situations and people that nobody seems to be elevating to the level of like the what is worthy of art. You clearly are activated by that on some unconscious level and it inspires you or drives you in artistically. But I'm wondering, like, is there also a conscious um, aspect to that? Like you this is maybe not at all how you feel, but let me just say, like, you walk into a CVS and you are sort of like, 
people ought to be writing about this. People ought to be paying attention and I'm going to just do it, you know, and because people, I'm going to put this in front of people so they know. Is, is, it, is it conscious as well or is it just sort of like this what inspires you? I, I think it's, for me, it's probably unconscious. I, things for me take so long to gestate. I mean, Last Night at the Lobster came from, I, I got one of these like little penny saver free papers yeah. they shove in your mailbox and you wish they wouldn't shove in your mailbox. Um, and I, I was reading it and it was just talking about this red lobster that closed down in Torrington, Connecticut. And I was like, that's really weird. It says, you know, people came from church to go have lunch at the Red Lobster after church, like they do every Sunday. And they found the front doors chained and padlocked. And I was like, okay, that's kind of an interesting scene. It kind of stuck with me. I was like, oh, that's really neat. So I just cut that out and I shoved it in like a little cubby. And for months and months, kind of forgot about it. Um, and then when I was driving to my job, there was a, a convenience mart on the way where I used to stop and get gas. It closed down all mm. of a sudden. And you know, it wasn't like that important. It wasn't a great place. It was kind of scuzzy. The price was kind of high because it was sort of on the way to the interstate. But it's a place that I stopped in every once in a while. I'd walk in. I'd talk to the people. They knew me. I knew them. And then whew, that little world is gone. So I started thinking more about that world being gone and who would miss it, mm. um, who would really miss it. And I just started thinking about who that person could possibly be. And while I was doing something else, I ran into a guy who said he just lost his girlfriend. He just lost his job. You know, and so we just started talking about it and it came to me that this is the guy, you know, this the guy who loses everything because this stupid little place closes down, a place that no one else gives a fuck about. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought, OK, I'll put all those things together and see what I can come up with mm -hmm. there. So Would I don't you... always know. I don't always know what I'm doing. If you, I mean, if you look at my <laughs> office, it's clear. I don't always know what I'm doing. You kind of mess around you and you see what's interesting, what's to you what is interesting and sometimes you you realize hey this is kind of a big story mm -hmm. um and it's, it's a story that nobody else is going to write about and then you get excited because you mm -hmm. say okay this is my territory and i have the privilege of representing it to a much larger audience mm -hmm. um and so you want to go in you want to be responsible and so you want to find out more about it you want to ask people you want to sort of do some first person research sit down with the manager of red lobster and say hey what does it take to manage a red lobster, which they've never been asked before, right. never fucking ever, you know, right. and then they will answer it and you'll say, okay, this makes sense. That makes sense. And, and the story begins to build and grow and deepen. And you say, Hey, maybe I've got something here, but even when you finish, you don't know. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a story about a red lobster and you're like, you don't, who, who cares? Right. I mean, and you, you don't you know until you go to Germany, when you go to well, Germany, then you'll know. Well, no, no, you, you go, well, I, I would go and do college readings and I'll say, how many people here have ever worked in any kind of food service? Raise your hand, mm. you know, and half of the auditorium will raise their hand. It's a rite of passage, I think, yeah. in, in an American working life that you have to do that right. um, or, or a similar shit job. Yeah. Um, and you're like, geez, I'm so glad I'm not doing that job. Someone's doing that job yeah. right this second. Someone is doing that job, right. not someone, millions of people, right. millions and millions of people. And we call them now essential workers yeah in the old days they were invisible and didn't care about them mm -hmm. and now we're like oh those are the important people yeah. we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor do you want to hear how successful authors got their start the queries qualms and quirks podcast Ask published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. 
Author Sarah Nicholas interviews authors of all genres about how they got started writing, getting their book deal, and their experiences with publication. Sounds like something that would be up our alley. Listen on your favorite podcast app or go to sarahnicholas.com for more info. All right. Well, so look, we've got a lot of questions here um, that we're going to put up in the end. So just hold on, folks. But I just wanted to mention Ben Percy, the author. Oh, just, yeah. He just showed up and he said, Stuart is not only a great author, he's also a whiskey snob. Oh, <laughs> I am. Snob. Terrible, Years terrible ago, snob. He blamed you for getting him started on scotch. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, Ben. Good good man. Good man, Ben Percy. <laughs> All right. Um, well, look, moving on, Stuart. Um, I want to change gears here and just talk about a little bit about the literary climate right now and the publishing world climate. Um, so, you know, this book um, you're talking about, um, you know, Portuguese American uh, women. Um, there's four women who are kind of four teen, girls and women at the center of this book. Um, but in the past, you know, for example, with everyday people, you wrote about um, somebody who's handicapped. You wrote about largely um, African Americans in that book. Um, you know, you have kind of done it all in terms of telling stories from. Um, you know, kind of gender, race, perspective, things like that. You know, I'm just curious, having, you know, done all that for kind of for your whole career, um, what you make of the last, the very intense last couple of years in publishing and this conversation around who has the right to tell whose stories. And, you know, if you're a white straight male, can you only write about white straight males? If you're a black person, can you only write about black people? Or do, you know, how does that whole thing work? And is, is this something you, you think about? Well, certainly. I mean, in any time that you're taking on somebody else's culture and, and you know, trying to portray it, and you, you've, you've got a serious responsibility there. Yeah. Um, and you had better get your shit together. You'd better do your research and you better, you better learn. You know, mm -hmm. if, if you don't know, you better ask somebody. Yeah. Um, and that's a great thing. There's so many you know, first person sources out there and, and you just have to be open to it. I mean, you're not, you're not there to, to put your vision of that world out there. You're trying, if you're, if you're working in some sort of realistic vein, you're mm -hmm. trying to put out the world as it is. Yeah. Um, yes, your own bias is bound to creep in. There. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine Lindsey Graham's version of Ocean State. <laughs> very different. Very, very totally different. different. So, um, yeah. so you try to do your, your first person research. Um, you try to be very selective in your use of detail and, and how the emotion works. Um, Scott Fitzgerald said that what he needed uh, to write a character was an emotion that he understood. Mm. Um, and I think that's true with me as well. I'll try to write that character if they're in the grips of an urgent emotion and have that emotional urgency and, and, and need that I understand in a very personal way. Yeah. The details then, I have to go out and make sure that they're right. right. Um, and I have a lot of help in doing that. And of course, you're gonna run your, your, your drafts past people who have lived through those situations right. and they can help you with them. When I wrote the names of the dead about a combat medic, I ran by people who were combat medics in Vietnam. So they could, they could help me. They could fix those things that I got wrong. Um, the emotional core of the stories I have to handle that. And I have to be true to people's emotions and how the world is, how the world works mm -hmm. there. Um, but beyond that, it, it's, it's my responsibility to get it right. And if I fall short, then it, it's a complete disaster because you fall on your face and you falsify the experience of people mm. in the world and the people that you were hoping that the rest of the world would suddenly pay attention to in your book. That, that I mean, the, the ultimate privilege, privilege is to have 
the reader spend time with your character and care about them and mm -hmm. care about what they care about. That's like the biggest, biggest thing. That's the most important thing. Um, and you try not to fake that. You try not to, I don't know, you try not to pass. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, ideally, the book is not for everybody else who doesn't know about this experience. When, I, when I'm writing about prison families, the person that I want to read the book is someone who has somebody in prison. And they don't, they don't just nod. You hope that they're not just going to nod and go, oh, yeah, he got that right. He'll go. They'll say, oh, fuck, I forgot about that. That brings back all this other stuff that you've felt and you've lived through. And you add your emotions to that. So yeah. in Ocean State, anyone who's ever been in love, yeah. right? Anyone yeah. who's ever been betrayed. Um, anyone who's ever lost something. Mm. Um, so you, you need to be just part of the experience because the reader has to bring, I mean, they're going to, they're going to read everything and test it against life and what they felt in life. And if they can bring their emotions and their situations in there, then you really got something. Yeah. Yeah. And this book, I mean, boy, it was burning white hot in some parts about kind of young love. Um, it was, it was terrific. Um, and on that note, um, I um, sort of, mildly pressured Stuart into this, but I had a passage that was like absolutely incredible that I found and um, it just totally blew me away and I just would love it. It's just a brief passage. This isn't Germany, so it's just a brief passage, but um, Stuart, if you don't mind that one passage, if you could read it, it'd be amazing. All right. Yeah, this is, this is late in the book and it's in the point of view of uh, Angel. Below the cemetery, hidden in a thicket, there's a pond where her grandfather took her fishing. Even with the leaves down, no one can see them. It's cold, and the old army blanket Miles keeps in his car is itchy, the ground beneath them lumpy, but she doesn't care. There is nothing more than this. Lying there revived, free for a moment, she admires how the trees defy gravity, reaching for the sky. It's not quite winter yet. What will they do when it snows? Eventually the pond will freeze and be taken over by skaters, and they'll have to find a place inside. By then, who knows where they'll be, not Fiji. For now, it's enough to feel close to him again, if only for the short time. Climbing the hill toward the steeple, she remembers that for all of her sins, she believes in something. Yeah, I just got chills all over, like, wow. <laughs> well, thanks, thanks. Oh, I yeah, well, I, Angel, Angel later on is, is, I think, way more interesting than Angel early in the book uh angel angel before the the killing um is is not an, not an innocent but certainly inexperienced mm -hmm. i think um and afterward she she learns a lot in a hurry i think that's one consequence of what she does yeah, yeah. um now i heard you you've written a book about f scott fitzgerald uh west of sunset um and uh it's about kind of the collapse at the end of his career in hollywood but you know you were, i heard an interview you did about that and you were talking about how you know everybody just thinks because his prose is effortless people sort of might imagine that his creative process is effortless and you make a big point about that that dude just worked harder than anybody else and so my question to you on a passage like that which does seem effortless um, and so clean. Um, is that just, you know, another Tuesday for Stuart Onan? Or is this like something that you slaved over for months? I don't know about slave, but, but maybe um, picked at and plucked at and, mm -hmm. and, and ruffled and smoothed and, 
ironed and straightened and added and subtracted and <laughs> seasoned and you know and boiled down and yeah i mean it, it it's it's that gradual process. And I, I, I tell this to my, my writing students, my, my colleagues all the time is, you know, you're going to write badly every day. You're going to write badly, but give yourself that license to write badly. And then the next day, come back and make it a little better and make it a little better and make it a little better and make it a little better. You know, and as the draft process goes on, you're always fixing and changing and moving and, and you know, and, and sometimes you can see those little harmonies between things. And a lot of it is, is editing and editing on the fly and what feels right and improvising and, you know, it, a lot of it is is juxtapositions. It's putting, you know, one emotion or one color or one sound next to another one and seeing how it works out. Um, and at the same time, trying to make it seem um, not effortless, but just normal and average and, and yeah. something that could something that could be spoken or thought rather than puffed up and literary. Um, you want you want to avoid the literary as much as possible. And sometimes you can, and sometimes, you know, the temptation is just too great, you know, yeah. and, you, and you want to toss in that, you know, that, that big adjective there. And, right. and so, I mean, you try to, try to hold the violins down, you know? Right. Yeah. There's a, um, there's a great anecdote that I heard about Tolstoy that he would do that same thing that Tolstoy would like go through his writing, finding things that seemed particularly, particularly literary. And then he would quote, rough them up. Um, <laughs> he just, he had a nose for that, you know, that same process you're talking about. Well, I think, I think uh, Gordon Lish already told uh, Carver that sometimes the wrong word is the right word. Mm. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's tough. That's tough. And, and especially when you begin to rely on your own ear too much, you, you start, it starts all sounding the same. And so every sentence has the same scan to it and, and you fall into your, your bad, your bad habits. And that happens to me all the time. I and mean, sometimes I wish I, I you know, were a little bit more crunchier or more tone deaf. And I remember reading Ha Jin's first collection, uh, Under the Red Flag, uh, which is a beautiful collection. And, and he's just learning English then, I think it's his second or third language at the time, and trying to write in it. And so the sentences are just, it's like, it's like driving over potholes. Mm -hmm. But his sense of the characters is so spot mm -hmm. on and so deep and so smart and so wise and so true to the world that you're like, that's great stuff. Mm -hmm. The prose is just, it's just the medium. That's all it is. And, and, and I wish I could pay a little less attention to it, but the way that I've taught myself to write, it is to be very sort of line conscious and very line heavy. And again, I, I tell people that in the, the unit of drama is not the sentence. It's the scene. Mm. It's all, it's always going to be the scene. Mm. Um, so your sentences can be as beautiful as you want. And you can still have a, a book that is totally, you know, leaden and, and lifeless. I think you were talking, I saw you do a talk once you were talking about Dreiser maybe. And you were saying that like, <laughs> you were saying that the prose is so abominable, but the yeah. dream, yeah, I think the phrase, the beautiful phrase you used was like the dream behind the prose is what I was yeah. watching. Yeah. The dream that it calls up. Yeah. 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 And uh, you know, it, Philip K. Dick to some extent there, I mean, uh, there, there's certain writers that who's, who's, language or whose whose music i just cannot get through i i, I fight it i fight it the whole way right. uh but but also the people that try to be super super plain can sometimes come up with really gorgeous stuff i mean think of andre debuse um mm -hmm. and those short stories like you know the um, any of his early short story collections the he made sure that pro surface is very very plain there's not even like those hemingway repetitions it's just super super plain yeah. um 
and and again, it's that sense of character and that sense of life. I think that's that's what draws us back to these writers again and again. It's not their sentences; it's it's their view of the world and, and how they they apprehend. I think of Alice Munro, um, especially in those early collections, like Dance of the Happy Shades and and uh, The Beggar Maid slash Who Do You Think You Are, just so gorgeous. And again, finding life in these unexpected places. Um, so um, I'm going to ask one more question, and then we're going to go to some of our audience questions in the few minutes we have left. So just my producer, get those ready. Um, but, um, you know, we're talking about other writers here. And I know that so you wrote that book about Fitzgerald. And I think that you wrote a screenplay once about the end of Edgar Allan Poe's life. Is that is that right? Yeah, it was a whole big biopic. It's the whole life. The whole yeah, life. Okay, okay. Life was just... It was, it was way too long. It was so, so I guess, so my question just on that is, I mean, and I know from just like listening to a bunch of interviews that you've done um, that you like talking about literary figures and you like talking about the lives uh, of writers. And I'm just wondering why that is. Uh, in particular, I mean, Poe and Fitzgerald just sort of really crashed out at the end. And maybe there's something about the crashed out author, which is even more activating for you. But I'm just wondering, I mean, what's what's the interest there? I don't know. It, it's that figure of the, you know, the, I don't know, the, 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 the person who is sort of touched with both genius and disaster. I think mm. of the Guy de Maupassant, you know, at the end of his life was sentenced, what sentenced? He was, he was in a uh, insane asylum in the end. Um, and he thought people were trying to steal the salt out of his body. Who knows what? Um, and it's kind of a romantic or cliched figure. In a way, and in, in in writing both West of Sunset and in writing Poe, I think I'm trying to bring that back to the everyday, um, and and the everyday pressures of creation, um, and and what stands in the way of creation. And in both cases, both Poe and Fitzgerald were widely heralded during their lifetimes. I mean, The Raven was a sensation during his lifetime. Of course, Fitzgerald, when he's 21 years old, has the number one bestseller in New York. So it's not mm. like these are these are overlooked. These are not Melvillian figures that we're looking at, right? These are people who that were stars and then couldn't handle that sort of stardom and, and tried to sort of, whether consciously or unconsciously, crash their way out of it. Mm -hmm. um, which is definitely not what, you know, what I do or what most writers do. Most of it's just kind of just grind it day by day by day. I mean, you, you never see a, a, a true to life uh, movie about a writer because it'd be boring as hell. They'd be sitting in a chair for hours on end, you know, uh, comma in, comma out. It's, 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 it's not that sort of flashy, um, florid, romantic life mm -hmm. full of you know, gigantic gestures. It just, it just isn't. So I, they're, they're in, certainly in American writing, uh, the personality of the author is always more enticing than actually having to sit down and read their work and think about it. It's always going to be that way. Um, so it's, I don't know, but I, I think Fitzgerald's kind of just fascinating because he's so good and he, he, he revolutionizes, uh, American fiction writing. And just, mm -hmm. if you look at Gatsby, I mean, it's like, what 220 pages long and it's got everything in it but it's fast it's gorgeous it's funny as shit mm -hmm. i mean and he's essentially a comic writer he's a great comic writer and people sort of push him into that tragic category mm -hmm. um but he's hilarious the guy's mm -hmm. just just hilarious and so quick so quick um yeah i mean in american writing has never been the same since then um mm -hmm. 
so that you know he's 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 that kind of you know what's the word for it uh, i guess we call it now a disruptive figure yeah. there and yeah. they they didn't know what to do with him uh, yeah. he, he didn't know what to do with himself either but uh, that that book is just um the great gatsby just it's the most inexhaustible maybe piece of literature that that i know of you know just you it just never seems not fresh to me and and I, I'm not sure how he quite figured. I mean, I, I kind of know a little bit how he figured it out, but that question of who's included and who is not, right? Right. And it takes that midwestern guy who's you know the, the poor kid from the nice neighborhood to figure out you know who's left out, right. um, and to write a gorgeous book about it. Right. All right. So um, before we run out of time, we I do want to get to these questions. So let's just throw a few questions up here and see if we can get to them. All right. So Gail, why choose Rhode Island for your setting? Uh, originally, it was going to be Connecticut because the murder that this was based on actually happened in Connecticut in this little river town, um, Haddam, Connecticut. Um, but I decided on Rhode Island because I knew it better and I was writing during COVID. So I was stuck inside and I couldn't go out and do my usual sort of location scouting. So I figured I'd set it at a beach community in the off season um, for that sort of the empty feeling. And, and I knew Ashaway, Rhode Island very, very well, having lived there for a while um, and my, my wife's mother being from there. So I figured I'd just transplant it to Rhode Island. All right. What else do we have? Oh, where did you get the idea for the plot? Uh, well, Gail, um, originally the, the, the murder was the murder of a, a young woman named Mary Ann Measles, a uh, 13-year-old in Haddam, Connecticut. And uh, she had decided to get into this group. And the way to get into this group was to sleep with all the boys in this particular group. And the girlfriends of these boys did not like it, so they convinced the boys to murder her. Um, and so they murdered her down by the Connecticut River and threw her body in an oil drum off of a railroad bridge. Um, and I've been trying to write that book for 15 years. I just couldn't find my way in. And eventually I got it down to it was going to be the two sisters. And whether they were going to be the victims or whether they're going to be killers, I didn't quite know. But I, I came up with a sentence that went, that fall or that summer, we lived in a house by the river. And just that sort of that cadence that it's very much, it was it a farewell to arms, right? Yes, um, that's that, totally what I thought of. Right. That, that summer we lived in a house by the river and that kind of haunted me. And I started thinking about these two girls in this family and this terrible thing that happens, how this whole small town knows. So how the small town sees them. And then I got thinking about Shirley Jackson's We've Always Lived in the Castle, um, which is one of my favorite Shirley Jackson novels. And the narrator of that, um, uh, Mary Cat. Um, the, the younger sister and looking at the older sister as this model. And I began to think about that. What if your model growing up was someone who turned out to be a sociopath and a murderer? Um, do, do you still love them? How do you feel about them? And what does that do to you as a self if that person was your model? Um, and in, in the very beginning, and Marie says, you know, I, I, my, my greatest wish was to, that I would suddenly magically become her, you know, and, and, and if you suddenly magically become this person, that's a terrible thing because she's you know, a horrible person at, in some ways. So I just, it had that Shirley Jackson feel to it. And again, New England, small town. I just started thinking about that more and more about the sisters. And that's, that was kind of my way in. Yeah. Great, let's do a couple more questions from Roy. Is exposition ever a problem to solve in the writing? Do you have strategies to deal with it? Oh, expositions, all, I mean, it's always going to be a problem. It's always going to be a difficulty. You can't just sort of lay it all down at once. Um, in this particular book, as in Snow Angels, I have that. It, it's easier because I have the, that retrospective frame. 
So it's natural that, that she, our first person there in a retrospective frame is going to say, this is how it was back then. These are the initial conditions of our story before we get going. Um, in a third person or an omniscient or third subjective, it's going to be a lot harder, I think. Um, typically, I'll try to start with a, a character who is uh, totally energized by the situation so that they're faced with either this is the first where it's like the fish out of water, right? The, the first moment that Larry steps down the plane stairs in Vietnam and he's hit with what Vietnam is, how it smells, how it looks, everything that happens, you know, the bus they take as wire over the windows. Everything's gonna be new to the fish out of water so they can describe things more because they don't know this world. So it's natural that they would try to make sense of it, you know, through the senses. Um, or the other way is with the last, the very last time. This is the last time I'm ever going to see this person. We're going to say goodbye here. So the scene in which you're saying goodbye, you have a lot more room to work with the detail when you're in third person. So and say last night at the lobster, I've got Manny going in there for the last. This is the last time he's going to put the coffee on. On a normal day, he wouldn't even notice the coffee at all. But this is the last time. So it's very ceremonial that he's going to put the coffee on. He's going to do this thing. So first and last. And the other thing where you can do more work in terms of detail and, and, and exposition is uh, peak physical or emotional uh, moments. Um, I, always, I always take as an example the love scene in Atonement. Ian McEwen has lots of room to do that love scene because it's the first time these two lovers are together. And it's really the first time that this boy who's like the outside, the gardener's son is kind of in this fancy library of the house. So even as he's making love to this, this girl who he knows he's not allowed to make love to um, because he's the poor kid and she's the rich girl, um, he is in this, this new world. So it's all new to him. So it's a little bit of peak emotional moment, fish out of water. He can do a lot more with, with setting. Um, and setting things up. Oh my God, Stuart, you crushed that answer. That was like, those are some gems in there. Always, always thinking, I mean, you're always thinking of it because uh, you don't want to slow things down. House with three stories and had windows. <laughs> it's like, oh like, yeah, we know, we know what a house looks like. You don't, you don't have to tell me. Yeah, if, if I don't, if I don't, if, if it doesn't somehow impinge upon the character's true desire, mm. whether, whether the character knows what their true desire is or not, if it doesn't impinge upon that desire, it doesn't belong there. Great stuff. Great stuff. And Roy liked the answer to that question too. Roy, great question. You really Thanks, got Roy. it going there. Um, all right. Let's <laughs> do one more question from the audience and then and then we'll wrap here. Um, from Trisha. Hi, Trisha. Does the process of teaching help your own writing? Of course. Of course. I mean, I mean it, it makes you it makes you solve problems. And that's that's what writing is about. It's about solving that problem. How do I get through this paragraph? You know, How big does this scene need to be? And it's always bringing you back to questions of um, pacing, uh, especially if you're writing in, in a novel class, questions of pacing and questions of proportion, right? It, it's, do I need a half scene here? Do I need a whole scene here? How big do I want it to go? How long does it have to go? Um, what kind of prose am I gonna use here? I'm gonna go, you know, long vowel sound, short vowel sound. So you're always saying, what's what's the correct use here? What's what's the correct point of view at this moment? Um, and you wanna you wanna learn all that stuff so that when you when you actually come to the page, you can improvise a bit more freely because you already know that you're solid on whose point of view, right? Like it took me probably three years to figure out that Marie has to carry the story. Um, for Ocean State. But now that I know it's going to be first person point of view, I can get down in that first person and be that much more intimate. I know I've got a very scary, cold, terrible story to tell. So I need to add some warmth there. So got to go first person there. 
bring the reader in closer there. And then I can cut away and go third and bring, pull back out and go back in. So yeah, when, when, I'm, when I'm looking at how other people are solved their problems, um, and, and, and is, this, is it possible to solve this problem? Um, yeah, and, and it gets, gets you back to like the basic question. The basic question is, is this interesting? Mm. Is, is this piece of prose in front of me interesting? And if so, why? And if not, why not? Because if it's not interesting, no one's going to keep reading it. Um, so it's, is, is it interesting? Is it well done? And then is it true with a capital T? No. Um, is it interesting? Philip K. Dick? Yes. Is it well done? No, it's a fucking mess. Um, is it true with a capital T? In a weird way? Yes, it is. It's, it's, so I'm going to keep going. But it's, it's just interesting. It can be as well done you know, as anything. If it's not interesting, no one's going to read it. Um, and I think sometimes that's what happens with these books that we think of as uber literary books. Um, they're just not interesting. Um, they're, they're interesting only as kind of literary objects in a way. And, and everything sort of relies on them being so well done. If it's not interesting, why read it? Stuart, I heard you say at one point, I think it was in an interview just last night that you did, that um, you had trouble with the voices of these girls at first. And you, and I'm just, I, I guess my question to you is like, at some point, clearly you solved that problem. Um, how did you solve that problem? Like, so first kind of like when, when the voice isn't working, what do you, what is your technique to kind of get the voice working? And then secondly, how do you know that you've actually done it? And you're like, how do you know that it's working? Um, it, 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 especially early on, it's very, very hard because you, you don't know, you have no idea. You have to say what level of diction does this person have? How do they see the world? What's their sensibility? Um, how do they see the world in a way that nobody else sees the world? I mean, who are they? And so you're finding out when you're writing your draft stuff, you're discovering who these people are from sentence to sentence to sentence. And, and often you have to do major revisions of that and you go back and say, okay, that doesn't make any sense. You know, it all has to make some kind of sense to the world that they live in um, and who they are. And that, I mean, that's kind of the fun of it, I think. And I'll, I'll be keeping notebooks. I'll have notebooks on the characters. And uh, I got one around here. Ooh, yeah. More stuff. So yeah. So I'll have like notebooks on the characters. Um, let's see. I'm going the wrong way there. Um, just oh. just pages, pages and yep. pages and pages mm -hmm. about you know who they are and you know what 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 words would they use and what, what's their mm -hmm. what's their world like. Um, mm -hmm. um, who are the people closest to them? Uh, where are the relationships that are fraught? Uh, where's the conflict? I mean, you're always looking for that conflict. What what relationship would they change? What can't they say to the people closest to them? If they said this to them, how would it change their relationship? I mean, if if Angel were to confess that she actually did kill Birdie to her mother, what would her mother say? Mm. Right? How would that change the relationship? She thinks I can't I can't do that. I can't say that. Um, the same. I mean, and, and you think about your own life and your own situations. You know, um, who are the people closest to you? Who are the people that are most important to you? Um, and if those are out of balance, how do you address that? Do you just live out of balance or do you try to do something about it? And some people will try to just live out of balance and just say, okay, that's never going to change. And other people say, okay, I have to address this. And you put those two different types of people together. And sometimes you've got, you know, even more conflict And the people that are around them than that are witnessing that conflict. That's Marie looking at her mother and angel and saying, Jesus, how do I fix this? I don't, I don't like this. I want everything to be fine. Yeah. And everything is not fine. What do I do about this? And so you put more pressure on the characters and the more pressure you put on them, the more their true selves come out to a point where they have to actually do something about mm -hmm. it. 
and choose a side there, uh, even though they don't want to. Amazing. I feel like I got a master class in fiction writing just in the last like two and a half minutes. <laughs> well, um, it, hey, it's it's easy to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Oh my it's God. To, it's hard to do. Well, for some of us more than you, I think. Um, but anyway, listen, I want to um, I want well, I want to wrap the interview. We went a little bit over, but um, you know, just the last question I want to ask you. I love talking about endings to book and uh, endings to books, and uh, it's a phrase I got from Jonathan Evison, the author. Um, the Johnny. Walk Away. Yeah, Johnny. Yeah. Um, but he called you know he borrowed it from Hollywood, but this idea of the walk away and how he focuses on the walk away and this walk away feeling that you get from a book. I love talking about that with authors and how they do it, and some do it better than others. But I was just blown away um, by the ending, and I think it's I won't be giving anything away just by kind of describing the feelings. It was just kind of sublime and complex. It was like sneaky and haunting, and I would just say that it um, it. It was the emotion was so unexpected. It just it just kind of hit me slant a little bit, um, and I just thought it was just remarkable. And I guess just the question I want to ask you about it is just you know, how did you see creating that ending? Like, is that how did you approach that? Is the ending very important to you? Do, do, were you trying to do something special there? Do you always try to do something special and so on? Oh yeah, I mean you you always want to end big, and, and you always yeah. want to end with something that that makes sense to the book, and, and even on a larger scale, not just momentary, mm. but but overall. Yeah. Uh, and that seemed that seemed to me a natural way to end. And I think I did that in the third person in Songs for the Missing as well. That question of who is left with the story, and mm. who is stuck, who is stuck with this, who 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 cannot get rid of it. Um, and and that goes back to that question of selectivity and emotional selectivity, and that. Who would naturally remember this stuff? Um, you know, who, who is, what is indelible? You know, what, mm. what can we, what can we never get rid of? Um, and when you, when you're looking at a retrospective narrator, it's always what is totally indelible. What will I never forget? Mm. Um, and in this case, Marie, Marie, our first person narrator, is never going to forget this. So it seemed natural for her to, to, to bring it home there, um, and still there in Ashaway. And yeah, and it's. It's it seemed it seemed right, yeah, right. especially with uh, a character who is so um, solitary and a little bit inward. I think. Right. Oh, just I would describe this ending more, but it would never equal the actual <laughs> ending. So I just kind of, I'm just, but I feel I like I want to talk about it, but I, I, I just that that ending just was a sock right in the soul. It just socked me, and no, uh, thanks, so well done. Thank you. Um, well, Lori, Lori Moore was my was my teacher, and she said, "Start big, finish big. In the middle, go as deep as you can." And awesome. I, I always kind of keep that in mind. Yeah. Well, well done. What a success, um, Stuart. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you for coming on the show, folks. Please buy Ocean State. We got all the links in the chat. Go ahead and just do it right now, um, Stuart. You put out about a book a year or a book every year and a half, two years. I hope you come back next time. This has been such Thanks. a pleasure for me. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. And thanks to Jenna, too. Okay, great. All right, folks. We'll see you next week with Peng Shepard on The Thoughtful Bro. And thanks for joining. And thanks for all your comments. We really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. I'm Trisha Blanchett for a Mighty Blaze podcast. My debut novel, A Fast-Paced Adventure Called Herrick's End, is available now if you want to check it out. My handle is tmblanchett on BookTok, Bookstagram, Facebook, and Book Twitter, and I'd love to see you there. We'll see you next time for an episode featuring Mickey Rowe. 
Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning. <laughs>